Hello, and welcome to a special Dream Lab series of the Price Lab podcast. I'm so excited to be here with Scott Enderley, the digital scholarship librarian at Van Pelt Library here at the University of Pennsylvania. And we're going to be talking a little bit about text analysis and the class about text analysis he was going to teach at Dream Lab 2020. You have a pretty unique background, PhD in English and a few years as an assistant professor, also as a programmer at a tech startup. So where did you pick up the technology skills? We know you got your PhD at Penn. Has that part of your life always been connected with literary studies or did those things merge later? I had a wide range of interests, you know, when I was young and I was really lucky, you know, really privileged to, to be exposed to computers at a pretty early age, first by my dad and then in junior high and then again in high school. But at the same time, you know, I was a I was a I was a band and drama kid. I was really interested in the history of, of art and literature and music. So when I went to undergraduate, I was pretty torn. I started out in computer science, but then I moved to English. And I th- I think if at the time there had been a DH major, I would have taken it in a heartbeat, just because I was interested in both. You know, not because I had some sense that they belonged together, but just I wanted to do both somehow. When I told this to my advisor in computer science. When I said I wanted to double major in computer science and English, he looked at me and paused for about 20 seconds and then said, why? <laughs> and so at that point, I sort of thought, well, huh, if that's, if that's the mindset here, maybe I can always circle back to this later. Plus, you know, there was a choice between sitting in 300-person lectures versus a 12-person seminar room. And so, you know, yeah, I went for the seminar room. But I kept programming in the background uh, intermittently, spent a fair bit of time teaching myself Python during my ABD phase as a kind of way of of getting out of the headspace of of dissertation writing. Through all of that, I have to say, well, especially in grad school, I was not a pro-DH person. I I was actually intensely skeptical of digital humanities. One of my last years as a graduate student, I was involved in planning a, a conference affiliated with the Penn Humanities Forum, and the theme for that year was virtuality. And I put a tremendous amount of effort into steering that conference away from DH. So I was like, I, I decided that, that I wanted the conference to be about virtual histories. And so it was going to be about the idea of virtual virtuality pushed back into into the past and people were saying oh you know we should should be should we have some language in this about like digital humanities it seems really interesting and i was like no i don't think we should luckily i was overridden and we did invite some contributions about dh and so that was sort of you know the beginning of my my conversion story over to to dh what drew you to the material that you you were going to cover in this course and what made you want to teach the class i should begin just by saying this was the fir- actually the first time I was going to be teaching this class on my own. I, I've taught versions of this class previously with Katie Rawson and Molly Dejadan, and I want to just say now, like, I've learned so much from them in the course of teaching versions of this, of this class in the past, and, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the things that drew me to the course in the first place came from conversations that I had with, with Katie and Molly. They were a huge influence in my thinking about how this course should be structured and what we wanted students to, to be able to kind of take away from it. When Katie and I first we're thinking through the course, we had a lot of conversations about the the idea that a lot of attention gets paid to the sort of computational tools that people use and and getting them to work, basically. Getting a software package to work, getting getting Anaconda to, to install and load what you want and, and giving it some input and getting some output. In the grand scheme of things, 
only one part, uh, maybe not even the biggest part of the, the process of, of doing computational research in the humanities. There's actually this really long span of things that you have to do, including you know, building a corpus, finding a way to get, get the text from that corpus into a machine-readable format, maybe making some decisions about how that format is going to be represented and made made uniform in various different ways, you know, labeling data. Then at some point after you do that for like hours and hours and hours, eventually, maybe someday you get to the point where you actually put it into an algorithm and get a result. We were really interested when we were talking about the course in trying to capture that whole arc of analysis, not just that one moment where you actually put it in the computer and get some results back. And to really emphasize like the importance of the decisions you make at every stage. So there's this huge range of, of variation in, in data that you encounter in the world and computers can't handle all of that variation as elegantly as we'd like. And so we have to make some decisions to simplify it, but those decisions are always gonna throw something out. You have to be reflective about what you're going to throw out and what questions you're preventing yourself from asking by, by removing this or that nuance from the data. So thinking those kinds of things through alongside some of the details about how the algorithms work so that you can start to make informed decisions about, about what tools you can use to answer a particular research question. We wanted to, to have all of those things kind of connected together in one course. There's that broad view of, of the whole process, but there's also some specific things that I would hope for students to, to take from a course like this. And I really hope that it's a course that would help students see just how much is possible with a laptop and a few spare gigabytes of disk space. There's a sort of weirdly persistent idea that doing quantitative work involves using like a supercomputer. <laughs> There's a tremendous amount of stuff you can do with just a laptop and, and a little bit of disk space. There's a tremendous range of different kinds of research that hasn't even been tried. No one's ever tried it before. And it's all completely doable with a laptop. If you can think of a question and if you have the, the data, you, you, can, you can do it really easily. You can do a lot of really exciting things very easily with just your own computer. I would be really, really excited for students to be able to come into a course and then see see some examples of what can be done. And even if they don't do those specific things to understand that like, here are a few little little building blocks that you can use to do stuff without needing additional resources. Because I'm really interested in, in making these kinds of approaches as accessible as possible. If people at the end of it walk away and never type another line of code, they would still be able to do something like put together a little corpus and run a topic model or a classification algorithm on it and create a visualization of the results. All of that is possible without having to program a thing. If you're interested in having fine-tuned control over the process, eventually you might have to do some programming or you might have to collaborate with someone who does. Just the ability to do an initial proof of concept or an initial test of, of an idea with these tools is, I think, incredibly valuable and uh, sort of broadens the range of people who can potentially take on projects like these. And then finally, I really want people to view this course as an opportunity to think skeptically about quantitative methods, to see the pitfalls and the problems and the ways in which a result that seems really profound and meaningful might turn out to be just a side effect of a decision you made early on in the data cleaning process. You know, that skepticism is really important. And I think that it would be awful for people to turn to the digital humanities and, and leave that skepticism behind. I think it's really important. And I think it's, it's what will allow the field to continue producing worthwhile work. Right. Because I guess, you know, whether or not people 
you know, go on and incorporate this kind of research into their own research agenda. You know, they're going to hear papers presented about this stuff at conferences. They're going to read articles and journals. Having an understanding of, of what this person should have been doing will help you just be a better critic. Absolutely, absolutely. Text analysis seems to fall under the category of computational humanities, which has been pretty polarizing over the past few years. Uh, on the one hand, these new tools and methods seem to offer exciting new insight into old topics, uh, but critics are often very skeptical of these tools and worry that they will lead to unverifiable conclusions at best and a reinscription of all manner of biases at worst. What's your take on this debate, and what do would-be computational humanists need to keep in mind about affordances and limitations of these tools and methods? Yeah, this is a question that's on my mind, like, all the time. In part, again, yeah, because I haven't really lost that skeptical streak. And, you know, there's a, there's a part of me that could picture a future where we spend 20 years doing DH and we, we find out all the reasons it won't work. <laughs> and then at the end, we stop doing it because we figure out, oh, it just doesn't work. And in that future, you know, the field is stronger for that. So it's worth doing. Um, but that doesn't mean that we have to expect that, that the interim results will, will, will wind up being useful. So I, I really think it's important to, to have a pretty long view of these questions. You know, not just a, not even just a 10 year or 20 year, but a 50 year kind of view of, of what, what this work is going to mean. What comes, part of what comes with that is a sense of the extreme provisionality of all of the results that are coming out of these new methods. There's always this push to intervene, to make an argument, to, uh, to say something new, to say something, uh, to change what people are thinking. And I understand that that's an important part of, of the process of scholarship. I think that if we're always focusing on those kinds of questions, I think we're going to miss the value of this work, which is really much more exploratory and much more about kind of feeling our way through what is really a really extremely dark room, just kind of putting our hands on various surfaces and being like, well, is that concrete or is that granite? You know, I mean, just building really, really basic foundational intuitions for what these tools are even really telling us. I think that I think there's some there's some practical things that I could say about, you know, just sort of learning some core key details about how a particular machine learning algorithm works if you're going to use it. And it doesn't have to, it's not that you have to understand, like, you don't have to rewrite it from scratch, but just having a sense of, like, the geometry of it, right? So, like, if it's something that only can think about straight lines, then know that it can only straight, think about straight lines and it can't think about curves. And so as long as your problem is one that can be answered by something that can only think about straight lines, then you're good. Those kinds of things are important, and, and I think there are some practical ways to just sort of develop some of those basic basic understandings of how the algorithms kind of model the world. And then also like a tremendous amount of tension again to to the early data creation process, right? And careful and and thoughtful and nuanced attention to the ways in which those early decisions matter so much. I think that I'm always more persuaded by work that that spends time to take a lot of care in not just doing the the data the data creation but explaining how it was done. You know, I think that there's this trend of adopting quantitative methods as a turn towards the sciences or as sort of like dropping skepticism about scientific ways of knowing. I think that's a mistake. I think these aren't, it's, we're not looking at two opposing points of view. You know, it's not contradictory to say we can learn something from quantitative methods borrowed from the sciences and also to say we need to be more skeptical of quantitative methods used in the sciences. 
Like those are those are things that can both be true at the same time. And I think that part of what's important about DH is kind of training a new generation of scholars to hold both of those ideas in their head at the same time. Penn senior Kia Da Silva and students from the Narrative and Listening in the Digital Age class at Penn, including Emmett Foley, Alexis Messino, and Kelsey Gibbons, 